Good morning, everyone. Glad you joined us today. Welcome to Vision Sunday here at Seabreeze. This is the Sunday where we look ahead and consider what it is that we hope God might accomplish to us as a church in the coming year. Now, if you're new to Seabreeze or just visiting, you've actually picked a good Sunday to visit. You'll get a chance to see some of the things that are important to us and what we're about as a church. Now, in the past, whenever I've stood before this church and shared the vision of what we're trying to accomplish in the future, it's always primarily been plans. I'm a planner. I love plans. Whenever plans are forming in my mind and I'm working together on plans with other people, it just gives me tremendous hope in building a better future. So I, I really like plans. But today, I want to give you more of a compass setting than just a set of detailed plans. And the reason is because Although plans are good, real life has a way of messing with plans. I imagine you had some plans last year that, boy, never got a chance to even get off the ground because of some circumstances that happened. So I want to I give you a, a direction. We're going to have plans, but I want to give you a, a direction that I want to lead us towards as a church, a, a compass setting of sort for this coming year and beyond. And this is really what Jesus did on the night, his last night, with his disciples before his crucifixion. His disciples were all in planning mode, and it was clear to them that finally the long-awaited arrival of the kingdom that Jesus had been speaking of for three years was, was about to happen. Everything was coming together, and their minds were just full of detailed questions about which one of them might end up in which position of importance in this new kingdom that Jesus would lead. And they were, I guess they were kind of thinking like a presidential transition team would think. And Jesus knew that they were completely unprepared for the future that actually was going to happen, the transition that was really about to take place. Now, they were unprepared not because they had never been explained and told what was going to happen. It wasn't for a lack of explanation. On many occasions, Jesus had made it clear that the kind of kingdom that they had in mind was not what he had in mind. He had come to change the hearts of men and women, not redraw the political boundaries of Rome. And really, imagine by this point, he was getting somewhat exasperated and trying to figure out, what, what more could I say to explain this to them? What, what more could I do to prepare them for the day when I'm going to be crucified and all of their plans are going to fall apart? Well, really, honestly, there was nothing left for Jesus to say. And so just hours before his arrest, he did something that they never forgot. And Jesus did this so that we, now 2,000 years later, would still never forget what he did before he was arrested. He did something that gave them direction when every plan they had formed failed. And from the ashes of their shattered plans, these 12 men went on to change the world. This is what happened recorded in John 13, verses 1 through 17. It says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured, a ba- uh, poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Well, then, Lord, Simon replied, don't do not just wash my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus had spent the three previous years preparing these 12 to carry the news of his death and his resurrection to the world. This wasn't just the news of these historical events. It was really the news of God's offer to repair our sin-broken relationship with him by substituting the life of Christ in exchange for our imperfect lives. Really, this was the central message of God's love for us. And this was Jesus' last chance to prepare them to be messengers of this message. In a matter of hours, chaos would erupt and he would be arrested and then with a, in a few hours crucified. What one thing was it that he wanted to leave in their minds? One last thing. Well, it's that this is, from beginning to end, a mission of love. Now, he could have told them that again in words, but words are easily forgotten. And so Jesus did something that would be very hard for them to forget. He demonstrated his love to them in a very practical way in that culture. And he set an example for them and for us. And what he was saying is, do not ever forget this. You know, honestly, in the middle of planning, making plans, collaborating on plans, executing plans, it's very easy to forget the importance of love. Love just has a way of kind of drifting away to the sidelines in the middle of all the things that we pursue in life. And Jesus is saying here, I I don't want this to become secondary. I don't want this to move out of the center of focus. I want you to keep this in view and do this. And Jesus modeled for us on that evening the three steps that always accompany love, three requirements that love always has. And the first requirement of love, the first step, is we have to stop. And that's because love requires time. You cannot simply love someone in a real practical way if you refuse to slow down and stop and consider what needs to be done. This is why even the best of plans can often get in the way of love, because 
plans are time sensitive. They have steps to them. And, well, love isn't always convenient. It just has a way of tangling up our plans. In verse 4 of this story, we read this, that Jesus got up from the meal. He stopped. Whatever he was doing, whatever conversation was going on, whatever part of the meal it was, we don't know, but he got up. He stopped what was going on in order to do this act of love. In order to love, we, we have to stop what we're doing to create the window of time that is needed to fit in the act of love. Now, it could be just a 30-second window, or it might be a larger window like it was in this case. The length of the time, of course, is not the issue. It's the stopping that turns out to be the hardest part for us. You know, we get moving with our agendas and our schedules, and it just is rare for us to take the time to pause long enough to even, first of all, notice what's going on in the lives of the people around us and listen to them, let alone act in response to them and do something or say something that would really love and help them. Now, again, for three years, the disciples had seen Jesus do this. It wasn't unusual for Jesus all of a sudden to be heading off in some different direction, to stop what he was doing and, and address a need. They'd seen him suddenly stop to heal a blind person or cancel the plans to get away to the other side of the lake so that he could feed thousands of people who were hungry. But what made this final display, this practical display of love, so amazing is how close to home this one was. Jesus didn't love a stranger in this display of love. He loved, well, as it says in the story, his own. Them. He loved them. The 12 disciples. They, they had become like family to him, and he to them. So why was it that he loved them? Why, why were they the recipients of this this exemplary act of love. Why 12 people behind closed doors rather than another display of love to thousands like Jesus had done before? Well, I believe it, it's because it turns out that when it comes to loving, it's loving our own that is often the hardest part of love. It's much easier to love strangers that you've just met and you may never see again, don't really have much of an impact on your life, that's much easier to love them. Love is much easier when it's new. It's when it goes on and on and on that it gets to be tedious and hard and challenging and difficult. It's hard, as it says here that Jesus did, it's hard to love to the end, to love your own to the end. Many of you know that <clears throat> This past December, Matt, our youth pastor, and I uh, flew to Tokyo. Matt spoke last Sunday and mentioned it. To be, we flew there to be an encouragement to Seiji and Kathy Oyama. Seiji and Kathy were members here of Seabreeze for a number of years, and they moved to Tokyo back in 2004 to pastor a church there. And um, we flew there to be an encouragement to them. Now, I selected a picture of Tokyo, and then later after I selected, I finally realized, oh, that's me in the middle of the picture there. I guess this is the one that Matt took, so that's me gawking, um, being the typical American tourist with my mouth open in the middle of Tokyo. 
But while we were there in Tokyo, uh, I honestly, I woke up every single day and several days throughout the day, I would, I would think, what could I do, what could I say today to be of an encouragement and, and of practical help to Kathy and Seiji Oyama? And then several times throughout the week that we were there, Matt and I would, we would brainstorm about ways that our church could, could maybe help them in the future. There's tremendous opportunities, and we hope to maybe send some mission trips and do some other things that would really help and encourage them. And so we, we had a great time just brainstorming and talking with them about what, what might be helpful. What could we do to really help advance the good news of Jesus in this culture that needs it so much? And when we sat down with Sage and Kathy at the end of the week and just kind of debriefed the time together, near the end of the time, they just said, and, and tears were in their eyes, they said, we are so encouraged that you guys would come and that Seabreeze not only remembers us but cares about us and, and wants to help in, in some different ways. And so the mission of love and encouragement was accomplished. Now, honestly, it was hard to carve out the time for me to go to Japan. I mean, we thought of doing this back in February of last year, and as I looked at my calendar and my schedule, I thought, you know, I think this may be one of the only times that I can carve out the time and make that happen. It was, honestly, it was hard for me to fly economy for 12 hours <laughs> and change time zones. You know how they make you walk past business class? It's like, oh, man, I'll see you all in 12 hours, well-rested. I'll be in some form of pain. You'll be feeling good. So it was hard to fly economy because you, you can't fly business class on missions trips. I mean, that's just never going to happen. <laughs> and it was hard for me to adjust to the time zone there, and it was just seven days, so by the time I got adjusted, we were back, and I was adjusting again. So, I mean, it, it, was, it was challenging to do that. Not impossible, but a challenge. And so to, to practically love them, it, it was effort. It required us to carve out time. But you know what turns out to be even harder than that for me, it is to wake up every day thinking about what I could say to encourage my wife. I mean, I did that for seven days in a row in, in Japan. But over the course of time, you know, that kind of drifts away. It's hard for me to make time to brainstorm about ways that I might help and love my wife in a better way. Why is that? I mean, clearly, I love my wife more than anyone else here on earth. Well, it's because seven days in Tokyo, that's the focus. But everyday life has a way of eroding the time it takes to love someone that you see every day. You know, we've been married for almost 32 years now. When we were dating, boy, the time it took to win her love was very clear to me. But now, we just both, we just get busy, and we just, it's not a, an intentional choice that we're aware of. We, we, we just tend to not stop often enough to really practically think and love. And so, this last summer, my wife and I decided that we really needed, really needed to take some time to invest, to reinvest in us, in our marriage. And so, we spent a week at the National Institute of Marriage in Branson, Missouri, which is run by Focus on the Family. This is a picture of the, of the campus there. It was so helpful to us. I mean, honestly, it was 
somewhat humbling for me. I mean, I'm a pastor. I, part of what I do is help people with their marriages, and so I had to get over the fact that we could use some input ourselves. But it was such a great week. We, we learned some things that we didn't know. We gained some tools that were so helpful. We relearned some things that we had known but had kind of drifted out of, out of our you know, mind. And then we spent three weeks after that week at a lake house in the area. And in this lake house, the cell reception was spotty, and the TV channels were limited, and the two we did get were awful. And so most of the days, and, and this was July in Missouri, so it was really too hot to be outside very much. So most of the days, we would spend hours talking. And we ended up, in those three weeks, working through 17 problems that we hadn't been able to make any progress on. Now, I know it's 17 because we listed them. And we listened to each other, and we learned things about each other that we didn't know, which is surprising, given more than three decades together. It was amazing. It, it changed us. And we are so grateful for that time. But you know what it didn't change? It didn't change our schedule. We returned and discovered that the demands of life had not diminished while we were gone. And that the patterns of our normal life that we had developed over decades were waiting for us upon our return. And honestly, we were, we were surprised. We thought that just by learning some new things and getting some time together that we would just come back and we would be different people completely. And we discovered how powerful the patterns of decades can be. And there were several parts of just our weekly routine that, having been away that long, it, it, it surprised us and shocked us when we got back. For example, honestly, I was, I was shocked how much time we'd waste in a given week just watching TV. Now, because we hadn't watched any for four weeks and you got back, it was, it was just unusual. I hadn't noticed it before. I mean, we, we don't watch a bunch of TV. We don't binge on Netflix all the time or really at all. And so I, I, I thought, oh, you know, compared to most people, we hardly watch any TV. And then we got back, it's like, no, we watch TV. And, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with watching TV. But what we realize is there's a big chunk of time available there that maybe could be better spent loving and listening to each other and the other people in our lives. And, you know, honestly, a bigger surprise for me was it was surprising how much of my own busyness was simply because of choices I'd made. You know, honestly, if you would have asked me before this summer why I was busy, I would point to all the circumstances that were driving my busyness. And the truth is, I felt like I was kind of a victim of the demands of life. But when I really evaluated it, the, the fact was, I had chosen most of it. I had chosen to be this busy. And the, the truth is, busyness is a cultural value. I mean, if you want to impress somebody in this culture, just tell them how busy you are. The response when you describe, oh, I've had a crazy week, everyone's kind of like, oh, my goodness, you must be so important. 
you, you just, I mean, to be that busy, you are, you are getting so much done and you are so important. Rather than, I am so sorry you're living such an unfocused and soul-sucking life. <laughs> I mean, we, we don't respond that way. I mean, if we did, we'd, maybe we wouldn't be so busy, but it's just like, oh, really? Yeah, I'm busy too, you know, and we talk about how little sleep we're getting and how busy we are, and we pat each other on the back and say, well, I'll see you next week where we can talk about how busy we are again. I mean, it's just a cultural value. But I was struck by something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it is the pagans that run after all these things. The word pagan wasn't necessarily a put-down. It was simply the term means people for whom God is not a factor. It was talking about the demands of life. And, and if you factor God out of your life, well, then you need to run around like a chicken with your head cut off. You need, you, you better freak out about retirement. And you better pile up, you just better squirrel away every little nut you can find. Because there is no God who you can trust to take care of you. But Jesus is saying, but you, you can seek my kingdom first. You, you, you can go through life at a, at a more reasoned pace because of me. Because you can trust me. You don't need to freak out. Work, plan. You know, take care of responsibilities, but, but don't, don't go crazy. But our culture does. Because our culture, for no matter what they say, God really is just not a real factor. So they run around. And I am a child of my culture. So since August, Rebecca and I have been chipping away at the ruts of our busy schedule. And, and that's really what it's been. You know, when we look at it, the ruts are like 30-foot high concrete walls. And we're just, we're not stopping. We're just going to keep chipping away at the ruts of our busy schedule. So that, not so that we can just lay around and do nothing, no. So that we can have more time to love the people that God has placed in our lives and to love each other. Now, Jesus knew that if his message of love would ever spread into this world, the messengers of that love would have to love to the end. They would have to love their own to the end. Anybody can offer an act of kindness to someone that they just see as they're walking by on the street, and that's fine and good, but, boy, to love in the trenches of time, well, that, that takes effort. Jesus knew that his messenger would have to learn how to to stop and take the time to love the neighbors that they lived next to for 15 years and were maybe kind of irritated with. And to love co-workers that they'd worked with for maybe 10 years. And here's the hard one, to love family that they'd known for their entire lives. Their own. To the end. Just imagine what God might do through us as a church, if many of us just started moving against the busy culture and reworked our daily lives to try to make more time to notice people and to practically love them. Just imagine what God might do through us. So stop is the first step in practical love. The next one is think. Love not only requires time, but it requires understanding. 
We, we need to be clear both about who we are and who this person is that's in front of us. Who are we and who are they? And it's often because we've got some wrong thoughts in our mind about them, their lack of importance, and us, our exceeding importance, that we tend to just overlook the opportunities to love that God has placed in our path. Now, why didn't any of the disciples get up and wash feet? It's because they all thought that it was below them. That's what was in their mind. You see, in this culture, it was the servants, and it was the lowest of the servants who washed stinky, dirty feet. It was certainly not future leaders of God's kingdom here on earth like they were. This is why Peter objected so strongly to Jesus washing his feet. I mean, he basically was saying, Jesus, this is all wrong here. He was saying, Jesus, I, I'm under you, so if anyone should be washing feet, it should be me washing yours. Well, what did Jesus say in response to Peter? Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, of course, then Peter wanted a whole bath. Jesus said, let's not get awkward here. <laughs> you know, last thing Peter wanted was, was to be separated from Jesus. So he said, okay, well, I don't want to make you mad, so wash whatever you need to wash so that I can be a part of you. But what was Jesus saying? Peter, you, you can't be a part of me. What, what did he mean? He was saying, Peter, you, you need to understand who I am and what my mission is. And clearly, you, you're not thinking right about this. You see, Jesus' big mission, the whole reason he came to earth, was not to remove the dirt from the feet of people, but to remove the stain of sin from their hearts. That's his mission. And Jesus is about to take his love for the people of this world much farther than just washing a few dirty feet. He's about, in just hours, he's about to lay down his life for the sins of the world. And in doing so, offer to wash away the stain of our sin by the power of his blood. That's much bigger and much more powerful than water over dirt. So why make such a big deal about washing dirt from 24 feet just hours before he's crucified and accomplishes the central feet of his mission. Why make such a big deal? Well, it's because it was from the lips of 11 of these men that the message of God's love for unclean sinners would first enter into the world. And Jesus knew that if the message of God's love is spoken by people who do not really love others, it's going to drown out the message. You can't say, God loves you, I don't. And have that ever be listened to. And so this is what Jesus is saying to Peter. Peter, this loving people thing is at the core of what I'm about. So if you omit this, Peter, you, you've gutted my entire mission. You, you can't have any part of what I'm doing. If you don't get this, then you've just disqualified yourself from being a part of what I'm, what I'm trying to accomplish here. Now, it wasn't that Peter had no love in his heart at all. I mean, he loved Jesus. He was ready, as he says, here, I'll, I'll wash your feet, but don't you wash mine. He was ready to wash the feet of Jesus. It just never occurred to him, even when he saw Jesus do it, that he maybe should wash any of the other dirty feet in the room. I mean, this was a cultural need. You, you, you wear sandals all day, and you walk on roads made of dirt, and you sit down to eat, and things 
things smell and look interesting. And no one had addressed this need. Why hadn't Peter thought of doing this to his other friends? Well, to Peter, at best, these other men were his equals. And probably, honestly, most he thought of as a little lower than him. I mean, if you read through the Gospels, it's pretty clear that Peter plays a pretty prominent role in what goes on. I mean, there's, there's no ranking that's clear, but, you know, Peter was, he was pretty close to Jesus. So I imagine as he looked down at the 12, he thought, yeah, I'm a little more important than you, a little more important than you. Yeah, you and I may be about the same, more important than you. And you see, when it comes to love, it makes sense for us, like it did to Peter, to love up, but not down. This is, this is the way we think. You know, if someone is above us, loving them makes sense. Why? Well, because loving them can actually help us, maybe. But if they're lower, well, then there's absolutely no upside to love. And we think just like Peter does. We rate people. We rank people. We are constantly, in our own minds, looking out, at the people in our lives and the people we encounter and saying, no, smarter than me? Nope, I'm smarter than them. Skinnier than me, fatter than me, prettier than me, uglier than me. More important, more successful than me, I'm more successful than them. We we just are constantly, if if you could run a transcript of your brain as you just look out and, and, and think about people, you would be shocked. I would be shocked at how, what a high percentage of our thoughts are all about rankings. But here's Jesus, God in flesh, doing an act of service that was deemed to be below most people in this culture. It wasn't because Jesus had a momentary lapse in his thinking and he suddenly forgot, oh yeah, I'm God in flesh. No, no, he knew who he was. In fact, the two words Jesus knew is repeated three times in this story. The first one, it says Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew the timing of things. His arrest, his crucifixion did not catch him by, caught everyone else by surprise, not him. He, he knew the countdown was, was upon him. He knew what was going on. And then secondly, it says Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew who he was. He knew that he was God in flesh. He knew, he knew that he was the most powerful person walking on planet Earth. There's no confusion about that. He even knew what Judas was planning in the betrayal. Because it says, for he knew who was going to betray him. That This is amazing to me. He didn't even skip Judas in this practical act of love. I mean, just imagine with me for a moment, Jesus on his knees (laughs) with a towel over his arm, washing the feet of his betrayer. I mean, for us, you turn on us, we're done with you. You've disqualified yourself from any act of practical kindness or love, but not for Jesus. Jesus said, you know, before you betray me, let's make sure your feet are all clean. I mean, it's just, it's just stunning. And the point that Jesus is making is very clear. What he's saying is when it comes to love, everybody's above you. If I, 
God in flesh, am washing the feet of my betrayer. There is no one who's below the reach of your love. Now, that doesn't mean you do whatever anybody tells you to do. Sometimes people get a wrong idea about love, and that means if you love me, you're going to do whatever I want you to do. That's not love. You know, love is we have to think about what we can do before God that's right, but we don't just do whatever someone wants us to do. But it does mean that there's no one below and outside the reach of your love. So, you know, as a church, we do have plans as we look to the future. You know, some of the bigger plans are we, we talked about this a little bit last year, but we, we still would love to start another service in the future, maybe a Sunday evening or late afternoon service. Don't know if that will happen in 2017. There's, there's a lot, obviously, that would have to come together and is coming together, but that would be fun if that could happen. would allow us to reach more people. You may not know this, but we, we actually have plans to start another church in this area. Now, that's probably at least two, three, maybe more years away because that, that's a big undertaking. Why, why would we make these plans? Well, it's because our community is starving for genuine love. In this culture of run around like a chicken with your head cut off, people are empty on the inside. Now, given the affluence of this area, they mask it well. They mask it in the pursuit of stuff or experiences or sexual activity or bucket lists. But only the love of God can meet the need on the inside. And that's, that's our mission. So can you imagine with me what God might do in this love-starved community if a handful of us just stopped sizing people up and started putting our minds to the task of how we might serve them in, in practical ways. I think it'd be revolutionary. And that brings us to the last step of love, and that is act. We gotta stop, we gotta think, but then we gotta act. Love requires movement. You know, in order to love, you have to open your mouth and speak, or you have to get up, get into your car, and go somewhere, or you have to open up your wallet and give. Or you have to reach out your hand and help in some way. You, you have to do something. L love is not just feeling strong emotions, even welling up with tears about somebody. That, that's not love. love. Love is always an action. It's a practical act of service. Love does not sit still. And so after Jesus finished washing their feet, he made it clear that his intention was not that this would be an amazing story that we would all talk about, but that this would be the beginning of many more acts like this. Not necessarily washing feet, but that kind of thing. And so he says, I, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You see, they, they had been arguing, even just hours before this, they had been arguing about the order of their greatness among the 12. I mean, really, what they'd been debating, Jesus had not put out the organizational chart yet. And they were trying to fill in the blanks. Where, where do we fit on the org chart? So Jesus said, well, let me explain the organizational chart 
of my kingdom. He says, I'm the master, right? You guys are clear on that. You call me master and Lord, and you're right. You got that box correct. I'm at the top. Then he says, so what have I, your Lord and master, just done? I've done the serving stuff. I've served you. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, hey, guys, there are no non-servant positions in my organization. Because I, the head of this kingdom, just served you in the most menial of ways. He was asking them to join him and serve. Now, being a servant is a different thing than just serving. The difference is this. Serving, that, that is the actions of service. That's a part of being a servant. But being a servant takes serving to an even further level. A servant is the position of servants. Servants do serve, but they serve within the framework of a, a position. So a servant is someone who serves in a specific place doing a specific task. You know, we often talk about serving just being random, you know, random acts of kindness, and that's fine. Serving can be random, but you see, servants are anything but random. You, know, you go to a restaurant today and you're served by a waiter or a wait- waitress, you're not expecting random acts of service, are you? The reason is because you went to a restaurant and they are in a position. That's what their boss is expecting, not just random acts of, well, we'll, we'll get out the menus when we do and we'll get out the drinks when we do. No, no. no. Oh, they, are, they are serving in a position. So a servant doesn't act randomly on their own terms. This is what Jesus is inviting us to be, is his servants. The reason that this is important is because if we are in charge of our own serving, we will remain selfish. You know what random acts of serving are? Whenever it's convenient for me. Now, that's fine, but that's not a servant. A servant is, I will be inconvenienced to carry out my master's wishes, which is to notice the people around me, to stop, and to do practical acts of love and service to them. We need a real servant position, not just the general impulse to love. Jesus is saying, be my servant. Take take a position in my kingdom. And be a servant. Now, for the disciples, the position of servant was obvious. I mean, Jesus would give them specific tasks, and they would do it. But how do you serve Jesus? How do you take a position of service now? Jesus ascended into heaven. But he left specific locations of service. As he said himself, I'm going to lay the foundation for my body here on earth called the church. So, for example, we read a few years later in Romans 16, verse 1, just this statement, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria. It's the only time this church is even mentioned. Centuria was a port city in Greece, and apparently Phoebe was a part of that church. She was a servant of Christ at a specific church, not just 
doing acts of service for Jesus randomly. But at that place, it's the same today. You know, if you say, I'm a servant of Christ, the next obvious question, where? Where do you serve? And what do you do? You know, just like if someone says, oh, I... I'm a waiter. Oh, where? You know, I just kind of walk around randomly <laughs> handing food to people. No, you're not a waiter. You're just handing food out. If we don't have a place and we don't have a task, selfishness will win the day. That's why next week we're going to talk about joining this team. Now, this may not be the team that God wants you to be part of, but if you have decided to follow Jesus Christ... You need a position of service somewhere. We'll talk more about what that means here next week. But again, the last words of Jesus in this story are this. Now that you know these things, I've talked about them, I've done them. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. You, you've heard me teach about this, Jesus is saying. Now you've watched me do it. You've been shocked as I've done this. Now it's your turn. You figure out what it looks like to wrap a towel over your arm to get on your knees and to love somebody. You do it. And if you do that, this world will be turned upside down. So here's, here's my big vision for 2017. Let's stop often enough this year, often again and again this year, and take time to notice the people that God has placed around us. And then let's put our minds to the job of trying to figure out how can we help? How can we serve? And then let's pick up a towel, get on our knees, and go to work. And let's see what, what God might do through us if that's the compass setting for our year. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we confess that, well, I, I confess that I have allowed the busyness of my culture to excuse me from stopping and noticing and loving the people around me. Too often I've just flown by and I've used the excuse of the pressures of my own choosing and the circumstances around me. And I've, I've focused more on my plans than on people. And I know that we all need to form plans, and plans are good, and we need to work on our plans, and we have responsibilities. But we know that at the end, when we stand before you, you're not going to ask us how many of our plans worked out. You're not going to ask us what our net worth was. You're not going to ask us how important we were. You're going to ask us how well we loved. You're going to ask us about the quality of relationships that we offer to the people around us. Help us, Jesus, to, to not forget this year. I pray that this story and your example would burn in our hearts and in our minds. That as we find ourselves just getting ramped up, that we would, we would follow your example. And that now that we know these things, we, we would do, and we pray that you'd bless us as we do this. We pray that as we practically love, that your message of love 
would create channels of truth and love in this community that would begin to really turn people to you. Help us, we pray, and we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, our example, Jesus Christ. Amen.